Well, good morning and howdy. How's everyone doing this morning, family? I'm Josh, one of the ministers. Welcome to Clear Creek. What a joy it is to be together and it not be raining today. Man, uh, I was thinking this is so apropos because today we're going to talk about Noah and the, and the flood. I was like, Lord, I thought you promised never again. Um, but I'm glad that it's a nice day today. So glad that you're with us this morning. Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and join me in the book of beginnings, Genesis chapter 6 through 9. We're going to try to do just a quick narrative through those chapters, Genesis chapter 6 through 9. Let's dive in. Are you ready? Grab your books and let's go to Genesis chapter 6. We'll be in verse 5 here in a moment. And we're going to be looking at the story of Noah and the flood. Now, Noah is a fascinating story. In fact, chances are you've seen pictures of Noah and the flood, or you've heard stories, or you may have even seen movies. I remember about a decade ago, Hollywood did a massive uh, movie about it. Russell Crowe played Noah. Did any of you, do you remember, did any of you see this movie? Uh, Some of you go, no, I don't even remember. Here's what I remember about it. Some people were so upset because Hollywood changed parts of the story And it was like they were shocked. It's like, why are you shocked? Hollywood changes stories all the time. Some people, though, they were appalled at this. And and, and here's the thing that I thought was so funny. It's like, listen, that was nothing. That was absolutely nothing. I have seen the story of Noah. I have heard the story of Noah played out by vegetables. (laughs) And some of them aren't even tasty vegetables. I mean, just appalling. Sometimes we get so upset about the way the story is told... Because we focus on the wrong points of the story. So here's what I want to do. I Just real quick, I want to give you the big point. If you're filling in the blanks on page 36 of your binder, here is the big point. Are you ready? The big point of Noah and the flood is simply this, that God takes sin seriously. And he gives grace generously. God takes sin incredibly seriously. And he gives grace generously. So here's the story. We're going to walk through it. I want to show you our little graph showing the history of the Bible. This is the way the story goes. God made everything good in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Everything is golden until the devil, as we saw last week, dressed as a snake, enters into the Garden of Eden. And he presents five lies to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, unfortunately, they believe the lie. As a consequence, sin and death begin to spread. And this period is known as the period of the fall. So if you're filling in blanks, we're still in, in today's teaching, we're still in the period of the fall. Because we see after the fall of Genesis chapter 3, things continue to spiral out of control. Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. In a fit of rage, Cain kills his brother Abel. And brutality and violence become the norm until it got so bad that we come to these words in Genesis chapter 6. If you're looking at your scripture with me, it's in verse 5. Notice what it says. Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Things got so bad that every thought of every human was on evil or how to commit evil and violence and brutality to others. In other words, here's the bad news. Every human heart is bent towards evil. Now, I know, if you grew up like me and you saw Disney movies, you remember hearing every Disney princess ever singing about, just follow your heart, listen to your heart. Friends, that is terrible advice. Following your heart leads to Genesis chapter 6. 
It leads to brutality. It leads to evil. It leads to violence. By the way, just a rule of thumb, anyone who is singing to animals that can talk back to them, don't take their advice, okay? Just a rule of thumb. And so you come to this moment where everything is busted and God looks and we're told in verse 6 of Genesis 6, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled, verse 7. So the Lord God said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created and with them the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. Now this is the point where Noah enters the story The world is continuing to spiral out of control and things are about to go very, very badly. And we're going to see the flood. It tells us a lot of different things, but I want to draw from it just five lessons. If we had more time, we'd see 15 or 20, but five will do for today. And here's the very first lesson. The very first thing that the flood shows us is simply this, that sin brings consequences. Sin brings consequences. I don't mean to tell you something you already know. But sin brings consequences. I think we know it here, but if we knew it here, we might change the way we live, think, act, because sin brings consequences. I think for most of us, at least me, maybe you do this as well, we take sin far too lightly. In fact, we don't ever want to call anything sin, do we? What do we call it? It was a mistake. So we say, I'm not a sinner, I'm a mistaker, right? Or we'll say, I'm not a liar, I just lie. Friends, Did your ears hear what your mouth just said? If you lie, what does that make you, church? A liar. If you steal, what does that make you? A thief, right? If you do something, if you are violent to a person, then you're a violent person. And so we don't want to call things sin because that feels prickly. And so we don't take sin very seriously. But the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And what we see in this is that sin has huge consequences. By the way, have you ever wondered why God's punishment, like the judgment he chooses, is a flood? Why a flood? I mean, he's creative. He's got a lot of options. He's got a hail. He's got fire and brimstone. He's got plagues. We're going to see that in a few weeks when we talk about Exodus. I mean, he's got options. Why a flood? Question, do you remember how the story of the Bible begins? In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. And then we're told this. And the earth was formless... And empty or formless and void. That Hebrew word means chaos. And then we're told in verse 2 that water covers all the earth. It is this watery, chaotic mess when God shows up, but then the Spirit of the Lord comes and God begins to order things. Here's the point when God enters the story, He orders things. Things that are broken and chaotic are put together. But when God leaves the story, when we push him out of the story, chaos rushes back in like a flood. The waters of chaos come back on the scene. Is it any wonder when we push God out of our schools, they become chaotic? Is it any wonder when we push God out of our marriages, they fall apart? Is it any wonder when we push God out of our political system, And when we push God out, our civil systems, it falls apart. It's because when we leave God, there is a consequence to sin. The floodwaters of chaos rush back in. But good news, that's not how the story ends. Go with me to verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And I love this, verse 9. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. And he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons. Do you remember the names? Shem, Ham, and Japheth, right? By the way, if you're looking for a great boy name, Ham is awesome. Just go with it, okay? So Noah shows up. He enters the scene. 
A couple details. I want to show you a map here, give you a little context. Noah most likely lived in the area called Mesopotamia. It was the land between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. In fact, the word Mesopotamia in Greek simply means between the rivers. Most of the events in Genesis chapter 1 through 11 take place in this area. In fact, here's the next slide. The Garden of Eden possibly sat around right there where that pinprick is. And there over to the left where it says Babel. That's where the Tower of Babel roughly would have been. We're going to see next week that just south, sort of between the two of them, we'll see a city or a place called Ur. Who comes from Ur, church? Abraham. So the story continues next week there. So all the story, this is really the heartbeat of where the first 11 chapters of the Bible take place. Now, here's the problem. Most of us were taught the story of Noah wrong. I don't mean to insult anyone who's a Bible school teacher. I don't mean it that way. But most of us heard the story of Noah something like this. The world was really, really, really bad. So God chose really, 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 really good Noah to help save really, really, really bad world. Friends, that's wrong. That's not how the story goes. Do you notice the order of the verses? Verse 8 comes before verse 9. Verse 9 tells us that Noah is righteous. He's upright. He's a good guy. But what does verse 8 tell us? Look at it again. Noah found favor. Favor comes before good behavior. God's favor on Noah's life, God's favor on your life, God's favor on my life comes before our good behavior. In fact, do you want to know what that word favor means in the Greek? Everybody say yes. Do you want to know? Great, I'm glad you do. It is the Hebrew word, excuse me, not Greek, the Hebrew word hain, which can be translated grace. God gives grace. God shows Noah, not because of Noah's greatness, but because of God's greatness. In fact, if we believe the previous verses, it says the whole earth is wretched and broken. That would include Noah. But God's favor comes on Noah, and then the result is blamelessness, righteousness. See, God comes on your life and my life, gives us grace, and then he does the work of changing us from the inside out. Here's the second thing we learn, is that God gives grace grace. He wants to bestow grace on you. And it's not about your behavior. It's about his favor. It always begins with God. Doesn't begin with me. Doesn't begin with you. And that's really, really good news because you don't have to be good enough for God's grace. Otherwise, it's not grace. Grace is a free gift of God. And so we're told, number two, that God gives grace. And the story continues. Jump down with me to verse 13. So God said to Noah in verse 13, I'm going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy them both and the earth. So make yourself an ark. Now, again, who did God pick for this assignment, friends? God picks the world's worst preacher. I'm not making this up. He preaches for a hundred years. And after a hundred years, who does he have in his little congregation? His wife, his sons, and his daughters-in-law. That's it. And, and, and by the way, the text doesn't even say that all of Noah's kids are saved. You say, well, it says, and his sons. It doesn't say these were all of his sons. It doesn't say that he had no daughters. It just lists these three. Do you get that? After a hundred years, his congregation is just his family. God picks the worst preacher. Not only that, God also picks one of the worst carpenters in the world as well. A hundred years to build a box. Yeah, that's what the word ark means. It means box. 
I love this because God looks down at Noah and it's like, he looks at him and he's like, ah, he's not going to do compound angles. He's not the brightest bulb out there. And so God thinks, it's like, ah, box. We're going to just do a box. Can you do a box for me, Noah? And he's like, ah, we'll try a box. So God gets him to make a box. So the world's worst preacher and the world's worst carpenter is chosen by God. Let me tell you why this is really, really good news. It's because my skill doesn't determine determine God's favor, and my skill doesn't determine God's plans, accomplishment, and neither does yours. I'm a mediocre preacher at best, and I'm a horrible carpenter. Just ask my wife. Well, don't ask her. She'll, she'll give you too many stories. I'm not good at either of those. In fact, I mean, here's the thing. I wish I were really good at building things. I wish I were. Um, but friends, my degree was in biblical studies and pastoral counseling. Like, that does not lend itself to building things. When my toaster breaks, I lay it on the couch and ask it how it feels about its mother. That's what I got. And so here's what I love about this. If God can use Noah, a bad preacher, and an even worse carpenter, then God can use you and God can use me. So what is it that made Noah so impressive? Well, if we understand the story well, notice that it has not yet rained on the earth. Not yet. So God comes to Noah and says, the sky is going to start leaking. All right, people, I don't even believe it when Channel 9 says that it's going to rain. And Noah believes God without seeing rain. This is an impressive story. So what does Noah do? Look at this in verse 22, one of the most important verses in the Bible. Genesis 6, 22. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Noah wasn't impressive for his skill, but for his obedience. Sometimes we rely on our skill when all God wants is our obedience. Sometimes we think if I'm just smart enough, wise enough, if I'm better at this, then God will use me in a great way. God might just want yours and my obedience. So when God repeats himself, in fact, he cares so much about this, about our obedience, that he repeats himself in chapter chapter 7, verse 5. Same phrase, almost identical, chapter 7, verse 5. It says, and Noah did all that the Lord God commanded him. In other words, when the Lord repeats himself, we might want to listen, church. And what is it that God values? God values obedience. In other words, obedience matters. Obedience matters. The way we live is evidence of what we believe. Do you know why Noah did what God said? It's because he believed that what God said was true. Do you know why you and I sometimes don't do what God says? It's because sometimes we don't believe that what God says is true. But God says obedience matters because obedience is evidence of trust. Obedience is also evidence and a matter of perspective. Did you know that? Obedience is a matter of perspective. Here's the question. You ever touch a hot stove as a little kid? You ever do that? You you come over? And the question is, why'd you do that? Answer, well, I couldn't see what was up there. I just saw something on the counter. It looked interesting. I reach up. I look around. And the next thing I know, my hand is on fire. And so your mom comes to you and says, don't touch the stove. Why? She has a higher perspective. She understands how life works And how do we often respond as little kids when our parents tell us to do this or don't do that? You must just hate me. Oh, that's right. I I don't want you to burn your hand off, so I must hate you. See, God loves you and loves me. And when we obey him, we're saying, I may not understand why, but I do understand that you have a higher perspective. And it is for my good and for your glory. Obedience is a matter of perspective. 
In fact, think about this. When you read the description of the ark, because God's going to give like all these details about how it's to be built. If you read it, there's one key part of the ark that is missing, but it's on every really good boat. You want to know what that piece is? A rudder. It has no rudder. And you got to think, if you know, it's like, well, how am I going to steer where I'm going? And God's like, you're not. I'll steer you. God says, will you trust me enough to get you where you need to go? Obedience matters. It's a matter of perspective. It's a matter of trust. But it's not only that. It impacts others, doesn't it? Obedience impacts other people. Can you imagine what would have happened if Noah had disobeyed God in any one of the ways? Like, for instance, God says, okay, Noah, now go get all of the animals. And what does Noah do? He gets them. Two by two he goes, and God shows up. He's like, so did you get all the animals? And Noah goes, I think I did. I had a little trouble with kind of figuring out the turtle situation. They both look like little boys or little girls. I'm not sure what. Do you mind, like, looking at them for me? Maybe put a little pink bow on the head of the, of the girl. That'd be great. And, like, if I'm Noah and God says, did you get all the animals? I'd probably say, yeah, but look. What if we don't take the cats with us? Just hear me out. It'll save a lot of problems down the road. Just kidding. But he does everything God commands. Can you imagine if he had not done what God commanded? How would it affect not only him but everyone else? Think about this. What if Noah had not obeyed God? It would have gone bad for Noah, wouldn't it? And his family. And us. Do you have any idea what hangs in the balance when we do not obey what God tells us to do? Here's the truth. You don't know, and I don't know what hangs in the balance when I disobey God and when you disobey God. I cannot see the generational impact of my decisions. Obedience matters, and it impacts other people. So here's the question. Are you obedient to what God has commanded you to do today? Are you? Am I? Are we people who, when God says something, we don't question it, we don't get a committee together and debate it. We say, yes, sir, because we trust you. Now, I know, I know, some of us be like, yeah, I would do what God said if... God spoke to me like he did to Noah. <laughs> Are you kidding? God did us one better. He wrote it down in a book so we would not miss here or forget it. And so he says things like, love your neighbor, he tells us. Or forgive those who've hurt you. Don't live in bitterness, he's told us. Or tithe, live generous lives, he's told us. Or share the gospel with others, make disciples, he's told us. The question isn't, has God spoken to us? The question is, do we trust him enough to obey him? Are we people who obey? Well, they enter the ark. The waters come, the world is swallowed up into chaos. And they're on the ark for a year until finally they're brought to this place. It's a dry place called Mount Ararat. Here's that slide again. Ararat is a series of mountains up to the north, and this is where God brings the ark onto dry ground, and he draws Noah and his family out of the ark. And as he brings them out, he tells them something that is absolutely incredible. Notice with me in Genesis chapter 9. Go with me now to Genesis chapter 9. And look what it says in verse 7. I love this. Very first thing God is going to start telling them is something that's incredible. He says this, verse 7. As for you, talking to Noah, as for you... Be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Now let me tell you why this is such good news, church. First one's real obvious to any man in the room who's married. Imagine you've been stuck on a boat for a year with your family, with your parents. Or ladies, you've been stuck on a boat for a year with your in-laws. All you want to do is to get off the boat and be fruitful 
and multiply. Can I get an oh yeah? Okay, I'll say it for you. Oh yeah. God is good. He gives them this command. But here's the reason it's good. It's not just because, hey, it's time to be together. It's also, did you know this is the very first command God gave Adam and Eve? The very first command in all the Bible is to be fruitful and multiply. Do you you understand what's going on here? God is giving a do-over. This is the start of the new creation. Noah and his wife are the new Adam and Eve. The ark is the new garden of Eden full of animals and food and life. And they're coming onto the earth to now be fruitful and multiply to subdue it and bring it under the dominion of God. God is a God of do-overs. Aren't you glad you serve a God who's the God of do-overs? I know I am. I wouldn't be here if it weren't for the second, the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and so on and so forth do-overs. And neither would you. But God is a God of do-overs, and he is doing something new. He is starting over with Adam and Eve. By the way, don't you remember the do-overs as a kid, right? You do something bad, you make a mistake, and what do you do? You yell, do-over! And everything goes back. Maybe you're playing a game with your parents, you mess up, and your parents are real kind to you. And so that you say, do-over, and they undo it. By the way, my grandmother, she was brutal. It didn't matter if I did it wrong or not. She would just beat us. I remember one day we were playing checkers, and she's just skunking everyone as we're playing checkers. And finally, one of my aunts walks in and goes, Mom, come on, give them a break. Be nice. Give them a little help. And Granny, this old woman with oxygen tank mask going to her tank, she goes, They got to learn sometime the world's not fair. King me. But God is not like that. He's the God of do-overs. He says, Let's try again. Let's start again. In fact, do you understand? Because of God's grace and mercy, this is what you and I get. The Bible says you and I get a do-over. Now, it doesn't call it a do-over. It says things like you get new life. You're a new creation. the, The old is gone. The new has come. You are born again. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, you get another chance. That's what the rainbow means as well, doesn't it? It's a picture of the do-over. God establishes his covenant, his promise with Noah and the rest of the world that he will never destroy all life with a flood. I was thinking about it. Rainbows are really just an impressive, beautiful sight. Every once in a while we'll see one, maybe through the rain you saw it this past week. Something that some of us may not know is that rainbows, at least what we see, is only a partial rainbow. You understand that what you and I see is only a partial rainbow? Like, if you can get high enough off the earth, you can see more than just part of the ark. In fact, um, a few years ago, NASA posted this picture online of a rainbow from a helicopter. This was taken above a beach in Australia. And the helicopter pilot, he's actually taking the picture down through some rain that was falling, and it hit the sun. And from a high enough altitude, what we see as a partial rainbow is actually a circle. Do you understand that the rainbow, from the right perspective, isn't just partial, it's whole? It never ends, it's unbroken. Write this down in your notes. Revelation 4.3. Revelation 4.3. Later this week, go and read it. It's a picture of the throne room of God's heaven. And right there we're told in Revelation 4.3 that you've got the throne of God and encircling the throne is a rainbow. Because God's promise is unbroken to you and me because of Jesus. There is no end to what he promises he'll do. And if we have just a high enough perspective, if we see from God's perspective, he says, I will not break my promise with you, friends. What I say will come to pass will come to pass. God 
is the God of do-overs. I don't know who needs to hear this this morning, but if you are in need of a do-over, you're in the right place because our God is the God of do-overs. Now, I wish that was the end of the story, but it's not. There's one final piece here, and it's a weird piece. In fact, the end of the story is a part that we usually skip in church. And I'm going to kind of go over it cautiously for some of the ears in the room. But here's sort of the end of the story, and it is just weird. Chapter 9, verse 20 tells us this. Noah was a man of the soil. That just means he's a farmer. And he proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. And that's how the story ends. It's like, draw that on the mural in your kid's bedroom. Mommy, who's the naked drunk guy? Ah, it's Noah. Why is that in the Bible? I mean, tell me, why is that detail there? Here's why that detail is there. Noah has been saved, and still he sins. But God doesn't kill Noah for his sin. God doesn't say, oh, round two of the flood, let's go. Because God is the God of do-overs. He gives grace even in our sin. He gives a do-over. It also tells us one more thing, and please, if you don't hear anything else, please hear this this morning. This also shows us that Noah can't save us. God is starting creation anew, the new Adam, the new Eve, the new Garden of Eden, and all the pictures coming together. And yet, just like the very first Adam and the very first Eve, Noah sins because he is still riddled with the curse of sin. And death will continue. And God's mission, God's rescue plan cannot end and will not terminate on Noah. It's going to have to find another way. And so God continues through the period of the patriarchs that will begin next week. Through the exodus, through the conquest of Canaan, through the judges, through the kings of Israel, through the prophets. And his rescue plan will lead us all the way to this little manger. And then to a cross. Because the only one who can save us is not a man named Noah, but a man named Jesus Christ. Jesus is the better Noah. He is the greater one, and it is only in him and through him that you and I have any hope at life. So how do you find this life in Jesus Christ? The Apostle Peter tells us this. He says, enter the ark of Jesus. If you want to read it later this week, go to 1 Peter 3.18, but I have it on the screen as well this morning. Notice what it says. In the ark, Peter tells us, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through the water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the greater Noah, and he is the ark of our salvation. That when we climb into the ark of Jesus, we find salvation. See, outside of the ark, the water did not save. If anything, the water was a death sentence. And outside of Jesus Christ, the water of baptism is nothing more than a lukewarm bath. That water has no power in its own. It is only when we climb into Jesus Christ, meeting him in that moment, that something happens. And for those who trust Jesus, just as Noah trusted God, we find salvation as we pass through the water. This is our story. It's not just Noah's story. And the question is, do we trust God? It was Noah's job to build the box. It was God's job to make it float. (laughs) And by the way, I think God knew that it wouldn't float without his help, don't you? That's why there's a little detail earlier where he's telling Noah how to make the ark. He says, and put pitch inside and outside of all the parts of the box. 
uh, what pitch is, is caulk. <laughs> God's saying, eh, even if it's a box, he's going to be pretty bad at the joinery, so just put inside, outside, just put caulk everywhere. Just like cover it up. Our lives may not look pretty with pitch on the inside and outside. We may smell a lot like animals being tossed about on the seas of time. But God can bring salvation to us and our families if we will trust him today. And the question is, as we read this story, will we, like Noah, trust him? Will we obey? Or will we be swept away? This is the invitation. So I invite you now to close your eyes and bow your head with me. I'm not going to do anything to embarrass you or put you on the spot, but I do want to invite you to ask the question, are you in the ark or are you outside of the ark? Have you trusted Jesus with your salvation, putting him on in baptism, or are you one who is still in need of a Savior's hand? As Peter said, you can have salvation. Just climb into the ark of Jesus. If that's you today, I will be in the lobby during our last song. If you want to talk about what it means to follow Christ, you come see me, and we will help you take that next step. But I suspect for the rest of us in this room, we are somewhere in there. We're learning afresh that sin has consequences, and we need to be reminded that God is serious about sin. For others in here, we're on the other side of the devastation of sin, and we need to be reminded now that God is the God of do-overs. And then there are others in here that we just need to be reminded that our obedience matters. It matters to us, our kids, the generations to come. So, Father, with every heart open to you, we do business with you now. Speak to us as you did Noah. Invite us into the next place of life. For those who need salvation, would you speak to them? For those who need to simply say yes to you in obedience, would you tell them what that looks like? And for all of us, I pray that this week we will be obedient to you knowing that as we do so, you will use it to bless us and to save many lives. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.